Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Does God ever seem distant to you? Well, no matter how you feel, God is real. To mature your friendship, God will test it with periods of seeming separation, times when it feels as if he has abandoned or forgotten you. But God doesn't leave you. He has promised repeatedly, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God admits that sometimes he hides his face from us. This is a normal part of the testing and the maturing of your friendship with God. Job said, I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I turn to the south, but I cannot find him. But he knows where I am going. And when he has tested me like gold in a fire, he will pronounce me innocent. So now tell me, how do you praise God when you don't understand what's happening in your life and God is silent? Well, you do what Job did. You tell God exactly how you feel. I can't be quiet, said Job. I am angry and bitter. I have to speak. This sounds like a contradiction. I trust God, but I'm wiped out. Regardless of circumstances and how you feel, hang on to God's unchanging character. He is good and loving. He is all-powerful. He notices every detail of my life. He is in control. He will save me. Circumstances cannot change the character of God. Trust God to keep his promises and remember what God has already done for you. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair shows you how to trust in God with a reminder to remember his promise to you, I will never leave you. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you and how was your Thanksgiving? Very well. Very good. Thank you. Today being the first Sunday of Advent and the beginning of the church's liturgical year, it begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas Day, ends on Christmas Eve, that is Advent. And this is a new liturgical year. The church not only wishes to indicate the beginning of a period, but the beginning of a renewed commitment to faith. Yes, we're into the Christmas shopping season, but how, Archbishop, can we all take advantage of the Advent season as a preparation for the celebration of Christ's birth? Well, uh, as uh, we know, uh, there are the three comings of Christ, the three Advents of Christ. There was his first coming uh, uh, at, on the first Christmas with the Nativity, there is uh, the second coming of Christ at the end of time that we pray for at every Mass. But there's also the coming of Christ now, uh, particularly in the sacraments and in uh, prayer. And so all those three things during Advent we take into account as we prepare to commemorate the historical birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And we also pray that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, but we should be very attentive, too, to the fact that even as we offer these prayers, we are receiving him in uh, the Holy Eucharist especially and in his word and the scriptures and uh, in our communion with him in the interior of our soul through our prayer. On Tuesday of this week, the United States certainly takes a, a step toward being more generous because it's being called Giving Tuesday. And it's a reminder to people that there is more to holidays than consumerism and commercialism. 
So this is the season of giving, and there are numerous ways that we can give to charities. We're encouraged to support nonprofit organizations, many ways to celebrate the day, such as volunteering within the community or giving food to local pantries. What can you tell us about the work the Archdiocese is doing in Connecticut to support area nonprofits, especially through the Archbishop's Annual Appeal? Well, yes, interestingly, we've made a real effort uh, to uh, provide the information on the uh, on websites and such about Giving Tuesday for the Archbishop's Annual Appeal, and we hope that we will realize a, a good return from that. Uh, you know, it's been our custom, and we did it again this year uh, around Thanksgiving, to publish in the major newspapers of the Archdiocese in our th- three counties um, a Thanksgiving greeting from the Catholic people, uh, to the wider community with a list of the hundreds of charities that are uh, supported in part by the Archbishop's Annual Appeal. And we do this not to toot our own horn, or to, but, but it, it, as Jesus says, to let your light shine so that others seeing your good works may give glory to your Father in heaven. And so we want uh, to remind people that the Catholic Church in Connecticut, in our archdiocese, is a very significant contributor to all of these uh, uh, efforts for the homeless, for uh, shelters, for uh, for um, soup kitchens, food banks, counseling for uh, addiction, and all of the many social ills and challenges that we have, that thanks to the generosity of the Catholic people to the AAA, we make you know over a million dollars of contributions from the Catholic people to these things every year, and uh, by listing them with our Thanksgiving greetings, we want people not only to understand that we are doing this for the common good, but also to hopefully enlist uh, some charita- further charitable donations to what we do. Well, promoting these these charities also means an opportunity for us to, to see all that is going on for the good of people and to take the opportunity to support it directly. Yeah, there are a lot of hurting people, you know, economically. Uh, and, and mo- you know, again, I always go back to that statement of Pope Francis, the moral, spiritual, and material destitution of so many people. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've talked about it before over and over again, but all these young people and other people of every age committing suicide, you know, with their opioid epidemics and all this, it really is very tragic. And, and uh, there's a tremendous spiritual vacuum here that, that we have to fill. This is not just a mental health issue. This is also, I think, for many people, a profound spiritual uh, crisis. You know what? Why? What do we live for? And 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 what? What is life? And and what? Where do we find strength to literally carry our cross? You know, I don't see without. I don't see how without Christ, uh, without faith, you can bear the crosses of life. And and that's why some people I think can't make it because they have no faith to fall back on. They don't have Christ to fall back on. And so we have to do what we can to to uh, rekindle uh, faith to address not only material destitution, but moral and spiritual destitution as well. Archbishop, let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life. And this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis, drawn from some of the Pope's writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and we'll ask you to comment with your own thoughts. This is taken from the Pope Francis's address delivered on August 15th of 2014, and is called, When We Live Among the Thorns and in the Desert. The Pope says, It often seems as if the seeds of goodness and hope that we sow are smothered by the weeds of selfishness, hostility, and injustice, not only around us, but in our own hearts, too. We are troubled by the growing gap between the rich and the poor in our societies. We see how the false idols of wealth, power, and pleasure are worshipped 
and at what cost to humanity. We see many of our friends and contemporaries enjoying immense material prosperity, even as they suffer from spiritual poverty, loneliness, and quiet despair. It almost seems as if God is out of the picture. It is as if a spiritual desert is spreading throughout the world, a desert that also robs the young of hope and, too often, of life itself. Yet this is the world in which you are called to go to witness the gospel of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the promise of his kingdom. Archbishop, you just finished talking about something similar. What are your thoughts? Well, I was inspired by, uh, again, uh, I thought it, uh, by Pope Francis in as much as I thought that trio of uh, that he described of spiritual, moral, and material destitution really uh, is a very good way to approach this and to understand it. And of course, the qu- quote you've just given from uh, his words uh, in one of his homilies just uh, reiterates that again. Um, a spiritual desert spreading throughout the world, a desert that also robs the young of hope and often of life itself. Mm. All these suicides and all of this aimlessness, you know, and unsettledness. And I might add that, you know, Pope Benedict, I remember him speaking about this desert as well. Uh, it, it, it is so obvious to anyone who has eyes to see that in certain sectors of our society, particularly the affluent, more affluent, more so-called developed world, that uh, this crass materialism and abandonment of uh, faith and practice of faith is going to take it and is taking a terrible toll on the human soul and on life itself. And, uh, you know, again, not to the, better to light the candle than curse the darkness. We can rail against this, but uh, each of us as a believing Catholic uh, has to uh, light a candle and try to, um, I mean, spiritual candle, and try to be a beacon of, of some faith and hope for other people, especially our young people, Even through our that... prayer, through, through our practice of our faith, uh, through our willingness to speak up. You know, the time has come where for Catholics to think that faith is just a private thing that you don't share with anybody or you don't, you don't talk about. That's, that's wrong. That's not what the New Testament says. Uh, you have to, you're not hitting people on the head with the Bible or, or trying to... Uh, uh, I don't know what you'd say, coerce them into believing. But you, St. Uh, Peter says in his epistle, be, be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that is within you. And sometimes asking is not in words, but if you see people bleeding spiritually on the side of the road, aren't you going to be a good Samaritan and share with them your faith? Uh, you know, I mean, I think that's our recent synod, you know, for the archdiocese, um, this loomed very large about being an evangelizing disciple. And we shy away from that. You know, we think, oh, evangelist, that's a fundamentalist Protestant kind of thing. Well, no, it's not. We have to be people of faith who give a good example um, and, and to find the right way to do it, uh, to, 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 to inspire and lead other people to, to faith. How can you be a faith-filled person if you don't give witness to this gospel of hope, as the Pope says? Absolutely. And I think... People don't know how to do it. You know, one of the things um, I think we're, we're we're not good at as Catholics because of our history, uh, especially in this country, but everywhere really, is to be able to talk about uh, our faith. You know, interestingly, I was at a meeting the other day uh, of very committed good Catholics, and you know, one of them said, "I'm in my old age now. I have never asked myself." Why am I a Catholic since the time that I joined the army when I was a young man? Mm. I've never asked that question of myself since. 
why am I a Catholic? And I thought that was really a, an insight into the challenge that we face. So many of our people, you know, they may say to their sons and daughters or grandchildren, well, you should, you should be going to church. You should be, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying that's wrong. And they may, may pray for that. But have they ever really said, even to themselves or to other people, why am I a Catholic? Why do I believe? You know, who is Jesus to me? We, we shy away from that. We think that's, you know, evangelical Protestantism, but it's not. Yeah. You know, be prepared to give an answer to those who ask the reason for the hope that is within you, the faith that's within you. And I think that's that's what we have to do. And I think that's what uh, certainly the Holy Father is, is talking about in this uh, homily that you, you've just uh, given us. The synod focused on that very much, and we have to keep the dynamism of that synod going. Well, let's take a look now at our Gospel reading on this first Sunday of Advent, the first day of December. Today's reading is from Matthew's Gospel, the 24th chapter. And after the Gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask you for your thoughts. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken and one is left. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Archbishop, what are your thoughts on this gospel? Well, the first thought is that we cannot reduce our religion to comforting, consoling, philanthropic sentiments without taking into account the whole gospel. And the whole gospel is that Jesus Christ, who was crucified and rose from the dead, will come in the end to judge the living and the dead. That there is judgment, and a human person has to make a decision in life for or against God, for or against Christ's faith, those kinds of things. Now, it's presented to different people in different ways, Many areas of the world are not even Christian, and only God can judge the human heart. But the truth of what Christ proclaims here it has to be taken into account, that the Son of Man uh, is coming in an hour when you do not expect, like a thief in the night, and that you need to be prepared. Jesus says that, that you know, all these parables about separating the sheep and the goats and the weeds and the, and the grain, there is judgment, and we do not need to be fearful of judgment if if we have set ourselves on the right path. And if we're not on the right path, God is merciful and to the very end calls us to repentance and faith. God never but gives up on us. Never. But we have to take these things seriously. And Advent is about the fact, as I said earlier, you know, that Christ came uh, 2,000 years ago, was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, that he comes to us now in the sacraments, in his, his word in the scripture, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Stay awake, for you do not know when, which day your Lord will come. And ain't it the truth? So knowing this, digesting this wisdom, making it part of your daily meditation, how then should it affect the way we live our lives? 
well, we should always live our lives in the light of eternity. We, we don't live just for this world only. St. Paul says, if we live for only this life, we are the most pitiable of people. Uh, but but we, we, we are immortal beings uh, created in the image and likeness of God. And so that's what we, we have to live accordingly, struggle accordingly to, to live up to our high calling. Not by our own uh, merits or our own strength, but on the grace of God and the gift of redemption that God's given us in Christ. It's kind of sobering when we hear the Lord say that we must be prepared for an hour you do not expect the Son of Man will come. To me, that says, appreciate the people who are in your life. Tell family and friends that you love them. Notice those that you can help and offer them help. Take no day for granted. Don't live your life regretting the past, nor live your life fearful of the future. You don't know how much time you will have. Absolutely. A good way to start the Advent season, I would think. Yes, to be vigilant and watching and waiting for your master to come. Every day when we say the Our Father, we say, Thy kingdom come. It's not something that we want to be afraid of. It's something, and we say, Come, Lord Jesus. That's the, the cry of the, the New Testament uh, after the resurrection. Come, Lord Jesus. Uh, we want the redemption and, and the purpose of this world to be fulfilled in God, uh, as Christ promises us that it will be. Let's take a look at some of the questions submitted by our listeners. Christine from East Haven, for instance, says, I'm aware that when we say in the creed, Jesus descended into hell, we do not mean the hell of the damned, but merely the place of the dead. But do we have any idea what that place was like? No, not really, Christine. It's the idea that all redemption and salvation comes from Christ and the tradition of Christ uh, risen from from the dead embracing even the the lives of those who had gone before him, the people of faith of the Old Testament. So it's really not so much into hell, as we, as you've rightly pointed out, but in the sense of, of the realm of the dead, the underworld, so to speak. Jonathan from New Britain asks, where did the practice of blessing ourselves with holy water on entering church come from? Jonathan, with my vast knowledge of Christian history, I can tell you I don't know. Mm. <laughs> Just kidding, of course, about the vast knowledge. But um, the practice of signing with yourself with the cross is very ancient. And with holy water, I, again, it's it's a recollection of our baptism. It always goes back to that, that it's yeah. a reminder of our baptism because we were baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when we make the sign of the cross with the invocation of the Trinity and we and we apply the holy water, it's it's always a reminder of that most fundamental reality in our lives, that fundamental change that is our baptism. Martha from Winchester says, I personally believe an all-loving God would not deny heaven to those who do not know Jesus Christ. Jews and Muslims love God the Father. Also, some people have never been exposed to Christianity. A friend of mine, however, believes that one must be a Christian to get to heaven. What is the truth? Well, Martha, this has been subject of theological uh, and spiritual reflection in the Church almost from the beginning. And certainly the Second Vatican Council in our very pluralistic uh, global village in which we rub shoulders with people of many faiths, the Second Vatican Council has given, uh, taken up the tradition and given us a very thoughtful uh, consideration of this. And basically it says that all salvation comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it also says that in in a way known only to God, it is possible for others to benefit from the Paschal mystery. So this is a judgment we leave entirely into the hands of God. But at the same time, 
uh, our faith tells us that any salvation that comes only comes through Jesus Christ. But I would recommend to you, Martha, to take a look at uh, the Second Vatican Council's document on uh, other religions for reflection uh, on this. Archbishop, there was recently an article, a news article, regarding the Pope's visit to Thailand, because in a meeting with priests and religious in Thailand, Pope Francis urged an enculturation of the gospel which allows it to have, he said, a Thai face and flesh, and not be seen as a religion only for foreigners. It seems that in St. Peter's Parish in the West Bank of Bangkok, the Pope said, let us not be afraid to continue enculturating the gospel. We need to seek new ways of transmitting the word, ways that are capable of mobilizing and awakening a desire to know the Lord. And he added that he was saddened to learn that for many people in Thailand, Christianity is a foreign faith, a religion for foreigners. It is about more than making translations, he said. It is about letting the gospel be stripped of fine but foreign garb, to let it sing with the native music of this land and inspire the hearts of our brothers and sisters with the same beauty that set our own hearts on fire. Do you have any, uh, any, any thoughts on what the Holy Father means by enculturation of the gospel? Well, this has been a major topic for a very long time. Indeed, it's part of history. Uh, you know, that uh, when Christianity left its uh, Jewish matrix in the Holy Land and encountered the, the uh, Greco-Roman world, it was enculturated into that Greco-Roman world. Uh, and similarly, when the Greco-Roman world collapsed and new uh, cultures and civilizations arose, there was not discontinuity, there was continuity, but it, the, these expressions, uh, they were enculturated, as we say. They, 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 they took on the forms of, of uh, new peoples brought over to, to the Christianity. And so what the Pope's saying is nothing startling, that you know it can't just be a European, uh, and this is true in all mission countries, Africa and Asia in particular, it can't just be a European culture that, that is expressed, but particularly I would think in the Orient, you know, Oriental uh, uh, culture being uh, very diverse from the European, that they have to find ways to express it. So I, I, obviously there are certain things that bind all Catholics together, fundamental things, you know, the creed and uh, the, the sacred liturgy. It's possible that there, there are cultural expressions of the uh, liturgy. I think you said the Pope mentioned even music. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that could be uh, perfectly, uh, uh, you know, uh, adaptable. Uh, but it's not just external things. Even the philosophy and culture of a country, we have to be very careful here that it doesn't uh, change Christianity into itself, but rather Christianity changes the culture into the Christian truths, you know, for, for those who believe. That happened, that happened in the ancient world in philosophy and so many other disciplines. And similarly, something like that still needs to happen in, in parts of the world where Christianity is a more uh, recent phenomenon, a more recent happening. I would think that the most obvious signs of enculturation of the gospel, enculturation of Christianity in Thailand might be in terms of the music used in liturgy. Well, that's an example, but I think the Pope was speaking of something much deeper, more profound sure, sure. Uh, in intellectual life, in cultural life, for example. But that would be, I think of another simple, uh, maybe example, I, you know, in some parts of the, remember, we used to have black as the color for the requiem for the dead mm-hmm. uh, in the church. Well, in some parts of the world, the color of, of uh, mourning and, and, and death and stuff is white, not black. So in those parts of the world where the vestments may be a different color, you know, it fits the culture of the people. And you understand that, again, these are just uh, kind of uh, 
I won't say superficial, but they're external manifestations of this. But there are other things that are more profound. But always has to be in keeping with the, the truths of the, of the faith, as these have been handed down all the way back from the beginning in Judaism and, and then through the Greco-Roman culture. Julie from Rocky Hill says, A few weeks ago, on the Feast of All Saints Day, Pope Francis reminded us that the saints are very much like us, real people that experienced successes and failures, but found strength in the Lord to always get up and continue their journey. He said that the strength of the saints to face daily challenges came from the grace of Jesus Christ, showing that everyone can be holy. His words really made an impact on me, but I am unsure on what he meant that everyone can be holy. What does he mean by this? How can I be holy like the saints? Well, Julie, uh, the vocation of every single human being is to become holy like God is holy. Not that we can uh, be perfect as uh, uh, God is perfect, but Jesus says that we should be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, doesn't he? In other words, we have to strive to live the faith, hope, and love that Jesus taught us as being divine. And uh, it's not easy, and we're not perfect. No one's perfect, but we have to strive for it. And holiness does not come from being a perfect person in this world. The saints sometimes are very difficult characters. I don't think people appreciate that. We see their plaster statues and we think that they just glided along life uh, being perfect human beings. They were not. Uh, saints very often were very difficult people and they sure, certainly experienced very difficult things. But it is in this agonia, this agony, this struggle of life that they set their sights on living the gospel and doing what, loving God above all things and their neighbor as themselves. And it's in that struggle that they became saints. Everyone is called to enter into that struggle and to uh, strive for holiness. But we do it as weak and fallen human beings who are redeemed by the grace of Christ. Saints also had terrible opposition and sufferings in their life, not just the ones who were martyred, put to death, but the ones who had to live a life of virtue in the midst of all kinds of human problems and woes, and for most, for the most part, and many sufferings and, and uh, you know, crosses. So it's, it really is about facing daily challenges with faith, hope, and love. Annie from Harwinton asks, why are certain non-harmful behaviors considered sins, such as immoral music or movies? Why would very minor sins be considered sins at all if they aren't hurting anyone? Well, what do you mean by non-harmful behaviors? Because what does the example you gave, immoral music and immoral movies, what does it lead to? Mm. Well, let's give an example. If we have a movie about immoral behavior, let's say a, a movie that talks about a criminal or, or killing or you know doing things uh, that are wrong, injustices. If the movie glorifies that kind of behavior then we might say, and if it would lead other people to want to imitate it, then we would say it is doing harm. If it's kind of a moral tale when it shows that evil doesn't pay, that evil, and this is the way most literature and, and art and, and such has, has progressed through the centuries, that it doesn't glorify evil or, or encourage people to commit evil, but it shows that evil leads to unhappiness and sorrow and bad things. If it's about sexual morality, well, similarly there, if the music or movies lead people to commit these sins, then uh, obviously that's wrong. But if, on the other hand, it shows that the wages of sin is death and it shows the misery 
that is brought about by people on people by this kind of behavior well that's another thing so it it just depends but anything that leads us to uh resist sin and to strive for good that's fine but if it does the opposite then it's not fine archbishop we've come to the end of our time together can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing lord god as we are blessed with life in this world for yet another uh, liturgical year, a new year of grace in our Lord. We pray that we may not let the opportunities for our spiritual growth to go unused, unheeded. Uh, Your voice calls out to us every Sunday from the Gospels and from our reception of the Holy Eucharist to live a holy life, to strive to grow in holiness, to grow in faith, hope, and love. And we ask you to give us the grace and strength not to be indifferent to what you offer, but to make it fruitful in our lives, in the life of the church and the world. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for being with us in the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week. And until then, enjoy this week. Thank you. You too. Thank you.